ahead and grab out your Bible, something to take some notes with. Excited to study God's Word today, and I will convince you before I die that you should take some notes, put some things, jot some things the Lord shows you down. Note takers are history makers. Come on, somebody. Like, you're going to take, jot some stuff down. Excited to get in the Word. Mark chapter 6 today, uh, verse 47. And I told you last week we were finishing up our series. I lied, everybody. One more story I really, really wanted to do was studying it this week and just decided we need to push this series one more week. All right? So today we're finishing it up, unless I change my mind for next week. All right, that's what we're going to do. Verse 47, it says, late that night, the disciples were in their boat in the middle of the lake. Been telling you in this series, out on the water, uh, we took some of the boat stories of scripture. There honestly aren't that many of them. This is the last major one, unless you've got like Moses in the basket in the Nile River or something. But this is actually the next one that I wanted to cover. So it says they were in their boat in the middle of the lake and Jesus was alone on the land. Now watch this. He saw that they were in serious trouble. Aren't you glad that God sees you? you excited? That's free, everybody. Rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves at about three o'clock in the morning, as Colorado was just winning, about that time, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water, and he intended to go past them. So let me kind of set up the story for you. This is where we're going. We're going to end up here, but a lot of stuff happens before we ever get in the boat, before we're ever out on the water. So I kind of set it up for you. Uh, if you go back to the beginning of this chapter... It's fascinating how Jesus has sent the disciples out to do ministry. And so he tells them, hey, go and preach and go and teach and go and heal and do all these things. And so they go out and they see people delivered. They see people healed. They preach the gospel. They preach the good news that Jesus has come. And they do all these things and they come back and they're telling him all the things that happened and all the things that they had taught. And about this time, of course, Jesus gets the news that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded. And so he's got a lot going on in their ministry. And at the same time, the Bible says so many people were coming in and out of Jesus's ministry that the guys, he and the disciples don't even have a chance to eat. And so they're overextended. They're over ministering. They're getting tired. They're overextended. So verse 31, Jesus is like, it's time for a vacation. Like we got to get away. We got to like, we got to, we need a break. We got to do something. He's like, we're going to get in the boat and we're going on a vacation to which all the disciples cheered. And so they got in the boat, set sail for a desolate place, a place nobody is supposed to be. And they're sailing to have this vacation on some island or something, just somewhere around the Sea of God. They're trying to get to some part of the shore where there are no other people. So they can have a little bit of a break and rest. But of course, the Bible says that the people saw Jesus get into the boat. They see him get into the boat. And I told you week three, the Sea of Galilee is not a large place. And so they see him get in the boat and they can kind of guess where he is going. And so you have all of these people that are so desperate to be with Jesus that they start to run around the outside of the Sea of Galilee to get to where he's going on vacation. They try to head around the side. It's kind of comical if you think about it. I don't know if you ever put yourself in the story or kind of like imagined what it must have been like. Because, you know, Jesus is the most famous human who ever lived. Not because he sings really well, not because he's like really popular and cool. It's because every life that he encountered, he changed. He transformed. And so people just can't get enough of him. You read the Gospels. They want to be around him. They know that they need him. And so they see him get in the boat and they're so desperate for a touch from him with his disciples. They start running as fast as they can around the outside of the lake just to get to where he is. So I just imagine in my mind, like Jesus in the boat, right? Like kind of putting along the disciples. And then on the shore, you see like a stampede of people, just like cloud of dust rising from them, right? Just like running to get to where he's going. And they're probably like, like put out the bigger motor because we got to change. Like he sees them just running around because listen, these people are so desperate to be with Jesus. 
And it says they go and find all these other people from the towns along the way. So like that first pillar, they, they find a town and more people join them. And so they're just like running as fast as they can. And the next town, more people. So by the time Jesus gets there, there are thousands of people who have shown up needing a touch from him. Like just imagine, just put it in your mind for a second. Your next vacation. Like you pack your bags, you buy the ticket, you get the hotel or Airbnb or whatever it is. You head out and like you're going to leave it all behind. And all those people that want things from you show up at your hotel. Like just imagine this for just a second. Like all those people, they ran all the way to Pensacola to be at your Airbnb. Like they are just there, just like waiting to ask you something, to want something from you. So verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he said, what is wrong with you people? Like, I'm on vacation, leave me alone. No, that's not what he said, right? Because Jesus loved people. It says he gets to his vacation spot. All these people have run to ask more of him, to see him, just to be near him. And it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. I think it's fascinating. So much of what we need. We need a touch from heaven. We need the anointing. We need the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to lead and direct us. We need a touch, maybe to healing or a touch of redeeming, or we need something to happen in our lives. But the main thing that we need is the word of God. The thing you need more than anything else is the word of God. That Jesus begins before he starts meeting any of the needs that we would think of to meet first. It says he begins to teach them. Before he gets to all the things that you and I think should be first, he says he begins to teach them the word of God. It's what will rescue you. It's what will change your life today. And it says in verse 35, by this time, it was late in the day. So Jesus begins to see these people's hearts moved with compassion. He starts to teach them. And as he's teaching them, they're getting like this flow, right? And so church lasts all day long and they're kind of teaching and the people are loving and just listening to everything he has to say. And it's amazing. And the day is going and they blow right through lunch and they just keep on ministering. And the people just love because they're just hungry for what God is going to do. And all the fast food places shut down and they can't get any food, but they're just listening to the word of God. You know, there's a choice we have to make sometimes. We have a choice to choose between a spiritual need and a natural need oftentimes in our life. And I promise you, the better choice every time is the spiritual need. These people are hungry. They haven't had anything to eat. It's late in the day, but they know that there's a greater spiritual need than anything in the natural. Jesus said at one time that man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is a spiritual need they're meeting. And they're willing to forego the naturals. Here are these people. They're prioritizing the spiritual over the natural. Yes, they are hungry physically, but they need a touch. And so they're not willing to leave. They're not willing to leave this place. But the disciples are getting nervous. I love the disciples, everybody. They are. If you want to connect with anybody and you say, that is my person in the Bible, it's probably one of the disciples. Because the disciples start getting nervous. And I love how the disciples are the ones who are obsessed with lunch. Like they just have this obsession. It's always fascinating to me how people who are entrenched in the church... Uh, people who work for the church or just serve and volunteer are always the ones obsessed with like, when are we going to eat? Like, when does it, like, when is the food? I'll tell you, we, we plan so many events for the church as a pastoral staff. I promise you, every single one of those meetings gets to the place of, and then when do we eat? Like, and then, like, when does the food component? Because we like to plan those things, but we got to worry. I don't know, just something funny about church. Like, y'all got up this morning and we're thinking like, where do we eat lunch today? Wasn't even breakfast time, and you're already, some of you are thinking about it right now. You're like, where are we going to get some food? Like, I don't know, Ben goes long sometimes, and I don't know what, where he's going with this whole water thing, but there got to be food for us, because I-12 might back up before he finishes, and that won't be good. So we got to, so disciples come to him late in the day, and they said, this is a remote place, 
And it is already really late. So you should send the people away. Not that we would send the people away, Jesus. Because Jesus, this teaching is amazing. We would listen to you all day. But it's the people. The people are really hungry. And the people just got to eat. You know, it's the people. So why don't you go ahead and send them to the surrounding countryside and villages so they can buy themselves something to eat. Jesus, I don't know if you understand this, but things have changed. Like Taco Bell's not open 24 hours anymore. People got to get some food. Like we don't know where they're going to be. Like it's Sunday, Jesus. Chick-fil-A is closed. Come on, people. So where are they going to eat? What are we going to do, Jesus? I can't find any food around them. But Jesus is literally the author of don't worry about what you eat and don't worry about what you wear. You remember this. And so he has an interesting response to the disciple. Watch this. Verse 37. You give them something to eat. Come on, somebody. You ever gone to somebody and been like, I think this, this, and this. And they're like, that sounds like something good for you to do. And you're like, wait, no, I just had the idea. I didn't want to actually. And they come to the disciple and he's like, you give them something. And so the disciples respond with, that's crazy talk, Jesus. You just, are we supposed to buy this much? We, it's half a year's wage. Are we to go and spend that much on bread? And so verse 38, Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? I want you to go and see. So they went and they took inventory. They find out, they report back, we got five loaves and two fish. So obviously, none of these people, like, intended on spending the whole day with Jesus, because all they can find is basically a Popeye snack box. Like, this is, like, that's all the food they can find amongst thousands of people. None of them had any plans for this at all. And all they can find, they're like, okay, we got, we got like, like five loaves and two fish. So we got a couple of shrimp, and then this guy loved the biscuits, and so he ordered extra biscuits, and that's what we've got. Like, we've got it, Jesus. We can. First of all, it's fascinating to me. We see some things happen here that happened long before we ever get out on the water. Because remember where we started this, this the whole thing. They're in the boat. The storm is raging. But the day before, this, this time that they're actually leading up to that, some interesting things happen. And so he asked them, what do you have? What is there? And it's interesting to me. Honestly, jot it down if you're taking notes. When God does a miracle of provision... God always seems to start in scripture and in our lives, always seems to start with what you do have. He always seems to start too many of us, especially those of us who say, well, I'm living a life of big faith and I'm living a life of trust in God. We're always looking on the horizon saying, what amazing new thing is God going to bring into my life to meet all of my needs? I'm just waiting for it, Lord, like Christmas morning. What incredible new thing, God, what are you going to do? When are you going to bring that new? But if you read scripture, God always focuses on what you already have. Because he wants to show himself great. Not this thing or that thing or you or anybody else. He always focuses on what you do to have. When God called Moses to be a deliverer, and Moses wrestling with this idea, are the people going to accept me? And am I going to be able to do what you've called me? God looks at him and he says, and what do you have in your hand? And Moses like, I got a staff. And God said, we'll use that. When the prophet comes to the widow in the Old Testament, 2 Kings, and starving widow who comes to him for help, he goes to her house and he says, what do you have in your house. And she said, I just got a little thing of oil. He said, we'll use that. God loves using what we already have. What's in your hand? What's in your house? And so he says, take inventory. What do you have over there? Listen, he's not looking for what you don't yet possess. He can touch what you've already got. And listen to me closely. What you already have, even though it looks like little to you, is more than enough in the hands of Jesus. More than enough in the hands of the master that we serve. And it looks like nothing to you. But God delights in touching what we already have and showing himself great. Now, I'm preaching 87% better than you are responding, everybody. But that's all. There we go. We'll have, listen, even though you might have a little, 
More than enough, you put it in the hands of the master that you serve. But Jesus said, what do you have? Now, I love John's account. In John's account, the Bible says uh, there's this little boy. We don't have to turn there. We're in Mark 6. But it says there's a little boy is the one that has the snack pack. He's the one that packed the Lunchable or his mom gave it to him when he left home that day and he saw the people running. He's the only one who had the foresight to bring some food. But the little boy's got the little snack pack. And I think it's fascinating because in our account, verse 44, it says that the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. When we talk about this story, we talk about the feeding of the 5,000. So what the writer counted that day were the men, but what God used to answer the call and to feed the masses that day were the little boy. You know why? Because God loves to use the people that other people don't count. Because at that day, all they thought, well, it's important to let you know there were 5,000 men. And God's looking at this group and saying, the person I'm going to use, the person I'm going to use to bless the masses and feed the groups is going to be this little boy that nobody else counted. He's the only one who's got the little snack pack. And God loves to use people that other people discount. You know, it says in Corinthians, it says, think of what you were, brothers and sisters. Think of what you were before God called you. You weren't the wisest. You weren't born noble. You weren't the strongest. You weren't the most influential. But God has chosen to use the lowly For his glory. You think about who you were before Christ. That God chooses to use the ones that other people don't count. And maybe you've been told all your life that you don't count. Maybe you've been told that you're not rich enough. Or you're not strong enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not young enough. You're not old enough. You're not whatever. You're not holy enough to be used by God. Listen to me. God uses the ones that other people don't count. God has a plan for people's lives. He loves to touch people that everybody else looks over. I'm convinced that God looks for people that everybody else looks over to use for his glory. It's the way that he works. He says, that's the one I'm going to touch. That's the one I'm going to anoint. And young people, listen to me for just a moment. Never let your age be an example or an idea that would disqualify you from the ministry of God. Don't let anybody tell you that your age is what keeps you from serving God. Because listen, it's your generation that's under attack. It's your generation, the devil's trying to confuse your classmates and the students and your friends around you. And so it's your time to serve and to lead, not just at school, but here in the church, to begin to preach and to lead in worship, to begin to serve at the door in the kids' ministries. It's your time because God loves using the people that other people don't count, that other people leave out. And then Jesus gives this strange command. Let's keep on going. Verse 39, he directed them, his disciples... He's like, you give them something to eat. Here's what we're going to do. What food do we have? Thousands of people. He directed them, have all of the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Honestly, it seems like a kind of strange command to give in the midst of what's happening in the story. Because there's like an urgency to the miracle. These people are starving. They got to get something to food. They're probably fainting in the sun. They've been in the desert all day. And so he, Jesus then operates any way he wants to. And he starts by saying, divide these people up into 50s and 100s. Now, it's fascinating to me because if you've got 5,000 men, Lord knows if it's a real church service, you've got 10,000 women. Come on, somebody. Like it is. <laughs> and then if you've got that many women, you have five, six, seven. Honestly, if it's victory, you've got 30,000 kids here. Because you all multiply like rabbits. Praise God. It's just amazing. She probably got 15, 20, 25,000 people hungry, hot, fainting in the sun. They're having this moment where they are realizing we need food. And Jesus is like, go divide them, not into like thousands, into fifties and hundreds and have them sit down on the grass. I love that Jesus does this. He's like, like you imagine, this is like herding cats. Like, I've tried to herd, like, two, three hundred of you guys when you're hungry. I can't imagine 20,000 people all starving. And the disciples are like, here's what we're going to do, because Jesus said so. 
So let's sit down at 50s and 100s. Why did he do this? I don't know why he did it, but I love that he made them wait. I love that he decided. Disciples are kind of freaking out. People are getting hungry. All this stuff's happening. They're waiting. There's urgency for this miracle. And Jesus makes them wait. You know, we're trained in impatience. You see it all throughout the Bible, but even more so, I see it in my own life. We are trained. I don't know about you people, but I am a super impatient person. And I know patience is a fruit of the Spirit, but I need the Spirit to work in my life right now. Come on, somebody. Like, I just need it. Like, I need it today. Like, right now, just come on. Get amen in God's house. Like, we like things fast. We are the inventors of fast food here in America. Come on, somebody. Like, we just, we like to have things fast, which in case you haven't noticed, is no longer fast. Like, it's not, I don't care how fast they say they are. They are super not fast. Because if you got more than like two people in your car and you pull through that drive-thru, I guarantee you. I got three kids. You pull through a drive-thru, every time you will pull to that window and they will say, can you please pull over into the side? And you're like, no. Because when I leave this window, you're going to forget I exist. And I'm going to go pull over in that little space and you're going to give all my fries to the 18 cars behind me and forget I ever. And about 10 hours later, you're going to come to my window and say, what did you have again, sir? I remember you had something. I'm working through some things, all right? I'm just working through some. <laughs> we serve a crockpot God in a microwave world. We serve a God that things take time. Majority of the promises that God makes in his word and to us, majority of them take time. Abraham waited 25 years to have one kid. was supposed to be the father of many nations. It takes time. Faith and patience. Listen, church, God's more concerned about your character than he is your comfort. And we see this in so many interactions in Scripture. That God cares more about what's happening inside of you than any comfortable thing you might want to be into your life. That He's got some things to do inside. He'll build your ministry after He builds your life. He's going to prepare some things. He does things with His people shaping and molding and doing. We're going to talk about that today. And He wants to do some things through you, but He's got to do some stuff inside of you. Jesus like, put them in groups. Verse 41, take the five loaves and the two fish. And Jesus looks up to heaven And he gave thanks. It's fascinating. Notice at this point in the story, it's still five loaves and two fish. Like it wasn't like make them sit down while I go do this thing over here. At this point in the story, it's still what he is thanking the father for is not enough to meet the immediate need. What he's holding up and giving thanks for, not holding up and being like, please, 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 please. He's holding up and giving thanks for is not enough to meet the immediate need. Jot down if you're taking notes. We got to learn to be thankful for what we have, even when it's not enough. Bible talks about being thankful in every circumstance. That doesn't mean like be thankful when there's enough to meet whatever the need is. Jesus lifted up five loaves, two fish, staring at 20,000 people and gave thanks. God wants to have an attitude of gratitude in everything in this life. Everything that I have comes from the Father and His gracious hand. So I will steward well and I will hold well what He has given me. And I might not live in the house I want to live in. I'm not wearing the clothes I think I should be wearing. But I'm going to be thankful for what God has given me. I'm going to give thankful for the things God has brought into my life. We've got to learn thankfulness in this life. Because everything we have comes from the hand of God. Jesus lifted it up, said, God, I thank you for this Walmart Lunchable snack pack. I just, I just thank you for this looking at 20,000 hungry eyes, looking back at him. Praise the Lord for this tiny little snack pack. Verse 41, here's the key. When he gave thanks and then he broke the loaves, still up unto this point, still not enough to feed the people. Still not enough to meet the need. Nothing supernatural has happened. He blessed it and then he broke it. I want to pause for just a moment because I think there's something beautiful here. 
And look, I'm not trying to shoehorn theology into this one verse, all right? Because there's, there's a principle here that just stuck out to me because of the wording of the verse. So you can throw it all out if you want to. But this just, this just stuck out to me in the way that it's worded, that he took the loaves, he blessed them, and then he broke it. And I just wonder how many of us, we want the blessing without the breaking. So we, we want the blessing of God in our lives and we want the kingdom of God to come, but we don't want the breaking. And the hard truth about the kingdom of God is so oftentimes the actual breaking is the blessing. In our lives, so oftentimes some of the most blessed people on planet earth you will ever meet are some of the most broken people because they have been forged in the fire that God has brought them through. That he has blessed them in the midst of it. Count it joy, James says, when you endure perseverance and trials of any kind. Because it's producing something inside of you. Perseverance in your life to lead towards perfection. It's doing something. Count it joy when you go through hardship. Count it joy when you're in the crucible. Count it joy when things happen to you that feel like breaking. Because it's producing something inside of you. Romans says we glory in our sufferings. Because it's producing perseverance and perseverance is producing character and character is producing hope. That's not an easy thing to say as a Christian. It's even harder to live out that we would take joy in our sufferings because it's doing something inside of us. That God would break us. He's not trying to destroy you. He's trying to produce in you something you never could have had before you were broken. Every time you were rejected. Every time you were marginalized, alienated, every time you were abandoned, every time you were disappointed, every time you were cursed at, every broken relationship, broken dreams, broken homes, broken destiny, everything that happened, God can use those moments, redeem them to do inside of you what he is calling you to be. Every moment that we serve a God who can redeem. We serve a God who can use broken vessels. The very thing you and I spend all of our time cursing in our prayer times is the thing God is using to produce inside of us what he has called us to be. Because out of the broken pieces, he feeds the masses. God can use the broken pieces of your life to touch the world around you. And listen to me, it's a hard thing to hear because oftentimes it's not for our glory and it's not for our gain. And it's not for our kingdom, it's for his. That he can use the brokenness of our lives, the broken pieces. Stop trying to hide from your broken season. It's what God can use to touch the people around you. That God delights in using what other people don't count. That he delights in using those people that other people think are broken. But he says, I can redeem it and I can use it for my glory. That's the kingdom of God. Now notice verse 41. says, he gave the broken pieces to the disciples to distribute to the people. Jesus didn't feed the people directly. He just kept breaking the fish and the loaves. He just kept handing them to the disciples. Write it down if you're taking notes. Blessing God gives us goes through our hands, not from our hands. Disciples could have had every inclination to be out there looking like, look what we brought you. Look what we did. Here's fifties and hundreds. By the time they get far enough from Jesus, they're probably thinking, Here's it. but the blessing didn't come from them and the blessing doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus alone. Yeah. Don't miss this church. Everything that we have comes from our gracious father and every blessing that we give to others just flows through us. God doesn't have any problem getting things to you. Can he get things through you? Can we actually be blessed to be a blessing around us? Because too many of us like the first half of that. Lord, bless me. Lord, use me. And then we don't care about giving out to anybody. It all flows through our hands, not from our hands. I think it's fascinating that we are just vessels. Please don't ever confuse it. The blessing didn't come from the disciples and it didn't come from us. It came from Jesus. So as we live this life, now another thing fascinating about this, throughout scripture, God is a chef. 
Like God gives his people food. I don't know if you've noticed this in the Bible. I notice food often in the Bible. And so it's just something that I focus on. Now you will too for the time being. But in the Old Testament, God feeds the Israelites out in the wilderness. And then in the Kareth Ravine, he feeds Elijah, the prophet. God knows how to feed his people. And God is a good chef. Like He understands food. He understands quantities and ingredients. He understands what he needs to do. That he's, he knows how many people are eating that day. He knows how many people need food. He's God. He knows it all. But in our story, verse 42, the Bible tells us they ate all of them and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces of bread and fish. It's interesting to me how Jesus kept breaking the loaves and the fish even after he already had enough to feed everybody. Like he's already fed everyone. He knows the exact, he's God. He knows exactly how many times he has to break this thing. But everybody's already eaten and he just keeps on breaking. Until they take up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. But Jesus wanted to prove a spiritual lesson to these disciples that our God is a God of more than enough. We'll see this later on in the story. He's about to show them something with these baskets of leftovers. He's about to try to teach them something. And they miss it, everybody. But he is trying to teach them something. With the 12, that we serve a God of more than enough. So David said in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. Ephesians says our God who is able to do exceedingly more and abundantly over what we could ask, think, or imagine. I don't know about you people. I've got a big imagination. Like, I don't know how you like live your life, but I got big imagination. My kids have bigger imagination than I do, so we're trying to temper that. But I have a big imagination. I said our God does exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask, think, or imagine. And we serve a God of more than enough. Jesus looked at 20,000 hungry people and said, you know what? I think we'll have leftovers. I think we'll just have, I don't know about you, but I, and my family will tell you, I love this story because I love leftovers. I don't know if I just get an amen. I like leftovers more than I like the original meal. Come on, somebody. Like I just, just something inside of me. I have been known to sneak into the homes of my family members to steal their leftovers. Come on, somebody. Like it's just... Good for the soul, bad for the reputation. Let's confess a little bit. I, I love leftovers. And Jesus looks at his disciples. He's teaching them, I'm more than enough. Get out the takeout boxes. I know you're thinking 20,000 people. I know you're thinking five loaves and two fish. But I am more than you need. Twelve baskets they take off. And not to show off everybody. He's teaching them something because of what comes next. The Bible says he does this because he's teaching them a lesson that they don't get. They don't understand it, but it is what he's doing. He's trying to teach them for what comes next. Verse 45, the Bible says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat to go ahead of him to Bethesda while he dismissed the crowd. That word made in the Greek, it means to compel. It means to force or to drive. Jesus put his disciples in the boat. He fed the masses and then he told his disciples, Under the sound of my voice, you are getting in this boat and crossing over to the other side. Now, if I'm the disciples, I'm getting kind of nervous if Jesus is putting me in the boat. I love that it put, he had to make them. He had to compel them, to force them into the boat. You're going to go to the other side. Jesus knowing full well there's a storm on the horizon. And I'm just reading into this here. It just makes it funny to me that it says he made them get in the boat. Because in my mind, my holy imagination, I'm imagining one or two disciples are like, are those storm clouds, Jesus? Like, is that like, he's like, shut up and get in the boat. Like, get in the, like, is that something on the horizon? Like, and he's just like, get in the boat and cross. Well, you're coming with us, right? No, no, you're going to cross over. I'll dismiss the crowd. Forces them into the boat and sends them out onto the water. Listen to me. They are following divine instruction when they encounter the storm. Jesus made them get in the boat. The Bible is very clear about this. Not like they decided, well, we'll go, Jesus, and you take care of it here. We'll do. No, it says he forced them into the boat. Now, I believe God is all good and the devil is all bad. I think that's pretty settled in Scripture. But you cannot read the Bible 
without understanding that sometimes God allows us to go through seasons that are painful. And seasons that are difficult. We've got, we're five weeks into this study. Last week we talked about people who are running from God. And there's some people who were running from God last Sunday found out that he was still drawing them back. That he was still loving and drawing. But maybe you came out of last week saying, well, I'm not running from God. I'm not like Jonah. In fact, God told me to get in this boat. And I encountered the storm. I'm not Jonah running to Tarshish. I'm, God said, he forced the disciples. He told me to get in the boat. And now this storm hits me unaware. I just want you to know, God never intended for the disciples to go down. He never intended for them to sink. He's about to give them a revelation in the midst of their storm that they could never have on the shore. He's about to show them something. Jot it down if you're taking notes today. Seasons of testing produce more in us than seasons of blessing ever could. It is hard to say. It is hard to live. But every time he is breaking us and molding us and shaping us to be who he has called us to be. Listen to me, nobody likes to go through the fire. Nobody likes to go through the storm. Nobody likes to be a testimony. We all love a good testimony. Nobody wants to be one. But he made them get in this boat. He sent them across. And so testing produces more in us than blessing ever could. Don't be jealous of the people who got left back on the shore whose life seems really easy. Fat and happy, eating that Walmart Lunchable snack pack. They ate everything they needed to eat. And they're back on the shore of happy... They're not in the storm. It would have been natural, by the way, for disciples to be like, why'd you put me in this dumb boat? Like, they all got to eat too, but you put us in this stupid boat, rowing for my life, when all those people are having it easy back there on the shore. They're all full, and they're happy, and they're safe. And we make this mistake all the time in our walk with Christ. We pray, God, would you use me? God, would you bless me? God, would you give me opportunity? And then we get mad. Well, they didn't have to walk through all of this. And they didn't have to suffer that. And they didn't walk through that storm. And their life looks all blessed and easy and mad. Don't get jealous about the people that are on the shore. God's about to walk into the midst of these disciples' storm. He's about to do something in their life that the people on the shore will never, ever experience. He's about to walk right in the midst of this and give him a revelation of Jesus that the people on the shore will never have. Don't be jealous of that. The storm is a blessing. Don't be jealous of the people on the shore. Don't be jealous of how he treats other people. Listen to me, this storm is not to destroy you, it's to produce something inside of you. But here's the problem, verse 48, back to where we started. He saw that they were in serious trouble. Disciples are rowing and Jesus alone on the land. He saw them rowing for their life and struggling against the wind and the waves about three o'clock in the morning. And so Jesus comes walking on the water, but he intended to go past them. Pause for just a moment, because I think the tendency is to read this and say, see, he's not going to help them. He's not going to do anything. He intended to pass them by. But see, if Jesus wanted to avoid them altogether, there were a lot of paths that he could have taken. Like he could have run around the outside of the lake like the rest of the people, right? Jesus could have walked on any other part of the lake. He could have, if he didn't want to be seen, a verse in the Bible talks about a story where they seize Jesus to throw him off of a cliff. And he just walks out of the midst of them, just, just decides, okay, I'm leaving now. You guys go and just have your fun over there. If he didn't want to be seen, he didn't have to be seen. But the Bible talks about, it says he was tending to pass them by. And I started to look, God has a history of this. When he was going to show what he could of himself to Moses in the Old Testament, he says, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And then I'm going to make my goodness pass by you. When he's revealing himself in that. He told Elijah, come out of the cave. When Elijah is waiting to hear from the Lord, he says, come out of the cave because the Lord is about to pass by. 
New Testament, he says, when he passed by the river where John the Baptist was standing in the water, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the middle of their greatest storm, God himself is about to pass by, walking on top of the waves. In the middle of their storm, on top of the water, he's about to display one of his greatest miracles in one of their darkest moments. He's about to show himself the glory that is the Son of God is about to pass by. It's about to pass by, but watch this. When they saw him, it's all been set up. The loaves have happened. God has shown him more than enough. Jesus has waited till three in the morning. He's about to pass by them in all of his glory, doing a miracle in their darkest moment. But when the disciples saw him, watch, they walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking that he was a ghost. They screamed in this moment when it should have been this glory and this honor, this amazing miracle he's doing. And they lose their minds and scream. But watch what happens. Jesus immediately spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid. He said, take courage. I am here. And he climbs in the boat and says the wind stopped immediately. And they were totally amazed. And don't miss this. Verse 52. For they still did not understand, though, the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. They still didn't understand what God was doing. I didn't see that this week as reading this story. They had just picked up 12 basketfuls of miracles that God had just done in their lives. And as they are rowing for their lives, as the storm is crashing on top of them, as all of these things are happening, they are looking at 12 baskets of the miracles that God had done. And they still can't see. They've seen God do incredible, miraculous things. Even with all of that, they gave up hope. Even with all of that, they gave up trust. They forgot about God's miraculous power. Listen, church, if you're in a storm today, if you are going through something, your power doesn't come from where you are. Your power comes from the God who has brought you through some things to bring you to where you're at. The power that we rest on, the miracles he performed in your life yesterday weren't just for yesterday. They built our faith to believe what God is going to do. Twelve basketfuls of miracles they are looking at as they tried to row and they still forgot the power of God. God knows what you need in your life and he has prepared you the faith that he has brought in your life. That he was faithful then and he'll be faithful now. That he brought me through that and so I know he's going to bring me through this. That my God is a God who provides more and abundantly more than enough. So I'm going to trust him with my life. Church, we have faith that God is who he says he is. That he'll do what he says he'll do. Disciples are looking at it, but they missed it. They missed the lesson of the loaves. They missed the idea that I know my God is more than enough. Church, we've been where we have been. God has brought us through the things he's brought us through. Not that we would get all puffed up. Not that we would have the glory, but we have faith for what's coming. You remember how he opened doors. You remember how he opened blind eyes. You remember how he healed. You remember how he moved. You remember how he made opportunities and gave us a chance to preach the gospel. All of those things God gave us to give us faith, to build our faith. And now in the midst of this storm, Jesus comes walking on the water. But the disciples missed the lesson of the loaves. One more story in the New Testament of God passing by. It says about a week, week or two till Jesus' crucifixion. There's a blind man begging on the side of the road. Been begging there his whole life. And it says that when they told the blind man that Jesus was on the road, it says they tell him that the master is passing by. He's passing by. Now listen, Jesus is like a week to the cross. He's got some things on his mind. 
He knows where he's headed. He knows what's about to happen to him. He knows the, the pain and the grief and the things that he's going to endure. And so he has set his eyes on the cross. He knows where he is headed. But they tell this blind man on the side of the road, they say, the master is passing by. And he begins to shout with everything inside of him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy. And Jesus stopped. Days till his crucifixion, days till he is sacrificed for the sins of all mankind, a few days to his greatest pain and trial and his greatest triumph, the Lamb of God going to atone for the sins of the world. He stops everything. And he calls the blind man and he heals him. He heals him. He has compassion. I, I can't imagine. If you are headed to your greatest thing, you have to give the greatest moment of your life, the biggest trial that you have to pass through. All of this is weighing on you, but one person calls him. One person hears the master is passing by and he stops everything and he heals him. Don't miss this. He had compassion on the man. Listen, early in our story, Jesus had compassion on the crowds, the ones who wrecked his vacation. Once he showed up in the desolate place, the Bible said he had compassion and he taught them. He performed the miracle and he fed the masses. He sent the disciples into the storm. All of this has led up and now it's Jesus's moment. You understand that it's his moment. He's walking on the waves. He's the son of God in a moment of pure majesty, walking on the waves. He is showing his deity. He is showing his complete dominion. Of the waves and the storm and the rains and the winds. And he is walking. It's his moment. It's his moment of majesty. And yet when the disciples missed the lesson. They didn't understand what they were seeing. They ruined the whole moment. They cry out in fear. And the Bible says immediately he left the great demonstration of his power. And he comforted them. Immediately, it says, immediately, he could have, I don't understand, in my mind, he could have like whipped up the waves even louder. He could have like boomed from the heavens, stop whining, you of little faith. He could have done anything he wanted. Immediately, he comforted them. He said, don't be afraid. It's me. I'm here. It says he got in the boat, even though they missed the lesson. And he said, don't be afraid. Take courage because I am here. That even in our greatest storm, even when we fail and falter, his mercy and his compassion still extend to us. Every head bowed, every eye closed today. Some of you came here today. Some of you watching online. Some of you in the room. And you've got an image of God in your head. Of this God who's only out to crush you and only out to punish you and only out to get even with you. But if you read the Gospels, if you actually read about Jesus, that he said, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save it. That his compassion and his love extends to us even when we screw it up, even when we've messed up, even when we've run so far from him. So just listen to me. If you are far from God today, maybe the devil's whispering in your ear and saying, well, you'll never be good enough and God could never want a person like you. Listen to me. Those are the lies of Satan to try to detract you from what God actually has for your life. Listen to me. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine and his compassion and his mercy is for you. If you are far from God today, cry out to him. 
If you're in a storm today, cry out to him. If you're walking through some things, cry out to him. Listen, like the disciples in the boat that night, you might have lost sight of God, but God has never lost sight of you. He loves you. Jesus is still drawing you. Maybe you're here today and you say, Ben, you know what? I am far from God. I've been through some storms. I feel like I don't count. I feel like my life doesn't matter. I feel like maybe it's too late for me. I just feel like all of these things. I want you to know nothing could be further from the truth. Right now, God sees you. God loves you. He wants to rescue you if you open your life to him. So every head bowed, I want to give you an opportunity. It's not to join a church, not to come to a side room afterwards, not to try to, I'm not looking to embarrass you. I'm not going to make you stand or come to the front. I want to introduce you to Jesus, the Jesus that has compassion on the broken and the hurting, the Jesus that is close to the brokenhearted, the Jesus that can make your life brand new. If you say, that's me. You say, I want to pray a prayer of surrender. I want to give my life to him. Right now, our church, it's our honor to pray with you. And I can give you the words, but you have to pray them and you have to mean them. It's a repentance that you have to choose to make. And it's a surrender of your life to say, Lord, I want what you want for me. So right now, let's pray together. No one prays alone, but if that's you, pray with us and say, Jesus, forgive me of all of my sin, of all my mistakes. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, church. Can we give God praise for what he's done today?